Over to Perth, the 10 time NBL champion, Perth Wildcats. Thank you, Mason. And as he just said, now we'll be discussing the 10 times NBL champions, the most successful sporting franchise in world history with 34 straight postseason appearances, your NBL 20 champions, and deservedly so, the Perth Wildcats. Except for Maccabi Tel Aviv. We said we wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, mention that. <laughs> Hello, Wildcats. All right, cool cats, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for dropping in again. To those of you who've already subscribed, rated, and reviewed the pod, thank you very much. It means the world to me that you guys are out there listening in, contributing, sending feedback back to the podcast. The people have been sending in questions. It's been fantastic. But I've got a very special guest for you today, and the guest in the podcast today is Mr. Mike Ellis, and Mike himself was extremely generous with his time when we recorded this Saturday morning, and hearing about the Wildcats history from his mouth was particularly special. So with Mike, we touch on some Wildcats community engagement in the uh, late 80s. We touch on what it was like captaining the Perth Wildcats, something he did for 11 years. We also touch on his shooting and the ability to shoot the ball successfully in the NBL. We speak about some of the toughest players he had to come up against, including that of the NBL GOAT, Andrew Gaze. And after all of this, we touch on the West Coast Classic. So the SBL season has decided that they're going to have a 10-week tournament in which Mike Ellis's Warwick Senators will be competing in that tournament. So we touch on all these things. Like I said, Mike was extremely generous in his time and very insightful in his answers. So I do thank him a lot for taking the time to join us in the Cool Cats Corner and bring it to your guys' ears. I did ask Mike if he wanted to have his introduction and his rev up in the actual interview itself, but being the humble and modest man that he is, and you hear that coming through in the entire interview itself, but he politely declined the rev up in the interview. So what I'll do for you, Cool Cats, is I'm going to give you the Mike Ellis intro right now. So before we start, I want you guys to hear this. So it's an excerpt from the Perth Wildcats website named The Wildcats Story. The NBL started in 1979. After three years of lobbying by the Gordon Ellis-led Perth basketball community, a side from Western Australia was granted entry into the NBL and, as such, the state's longest-running national sporting club was born. The West State Wildcats, as they were known, played its first ever game at the 800-seat Perry Lake Stadium on the 5th of February 1982. Mike Ellis was their inaugural captain. His famous number 6 jersey, now retired by the Perth Wildcats along some of the absolute legends of our game, Crawford, Grace, Vlahov, Fisher, Ellis's family name all throughout Perth Wildcats history. 302 NBL games as captain over his 11 season career, a two-time NBL champion as a player. To me, he is the one true Mr. Wildcat. He is Mike Ellis, and I'm very happy to have him as a guest here in the Cool Cats Corner. So let's get into it. Mike Ellis, welcome to the uh, Cool Cats Corner. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, Mason. Thanks for having me on. No, very happy to have you on. It's an honour to have you as the first guest in the corner, the first ever Wildcats captain, and was so for 11 years. Just out of interest, have you been a guest on a podcast before? Uh, no, I haven't. I've done lots of interviews and uh, that over the years, and you know, we've done a, a fair few uh, shows where we did some reviews of uh, you know what happened previously and all those sorts of things. But not a podcast, I must admit. That's, you know, they're relatively new on the scene in the last few years. Um, so, no, it's uh, funnily enough, I listen to quite a few. So uh, I'm aware of what they are, which is a good thing. Uh, very good. So willing to share a couple of podcasts you listen to? Oh, look, I, I've actually, uh, I actually like the Howie games. I don't know if anyone listens to them, but they, he pretty much does sports people. Uh, that's, that's his predominant 
um, people that he deals with. And, uh, yeah, so I listened to quite a few of those. Just recently, I've actually uh, listened to, uh, to Paddy Mills, oh. um, just, which, is a, which is a very interesting one because I remember, I remember being involved with the, uh, the national team at a junior level and being uh, coaching at the Institute. And when Paddy was there and, uh, you know, we were doing a beep test and just watching him do that beep test uh, is something that I'll remember for a long, long time because he was just a machine. Everyone else just fell by the wayside as they went through and Paddy just kept on going. So, uh, and, you know, he's done some spectacular things and the things he does for Indigenous people as well as, uh, you know, holding the flag for Australia. So I was really interested to have a listen to him and, and um, you know, Mark Howard does a fantastic job with that. So had a good listen to that and uh, just recently I've started listening to uh, Luke Longley's one because you know, I know Luke pretty well. Had, uh, you know, some uh, good relationships with Luke over the years. So uh, it was always interesting to have a listen to him. And the interesting thing with him is listening to it because it was done in 2017, so well before The Last Dance came out. So, of course, now, uh, you know, there's all this furor about why didn't they talk to Luke and all that. But if you listen to his podcast, um, it talks a little bit about the fact that he, you know, he's pretty shy. He doesn't like to be in the limelight and, you know, that's not what he's about. So uh, it sort of answers a few questions there. But what he does do is he delves into the time with Jordan and with the Bulls and those three championship rings and all that. So I find that interesting. And then I've listened to a few, uh, few golfers, um, which is some great stories there as well. So yeah, a bit of a, bit of a mixed bag. That's awesome. So that's a, I love the podcast format itself. So I guess that's why we're doing it here and hearing guys like Luke Longley give his perspective is just such an amazing aspect of, of the podcast itself. And I love listening to sports interviews. So that was the, the Howie Games and Luke Longley's podcast. So I'll chuck that up for the cool cats as well, just so they can, they can jump onto those, Mike. Yep. And well, have a listen. Oh, absolutely. Just hearing from uh, the basketball greats, hearing it from the mouths of these people is just incredible itself. So, and having you on, uh, our listeners as well get to experience that right now. And I guess, Mike, so for the, just to reiterate for the listeners of this show, I had the pleasure of meeting you whilst working for Sports Challenge Australia, uh, which is a not-for-profit organisation based here in Perth. And we know the Wildcats are heavily involved with the schools and WA community. Was it the Wildcats organisation itself which sparked your community involvement, or was that there beforehand? No, I think that was there beforehand. Uh, I've, I've always been, uh, you know, one to try and be involved in the community where I can, um, you know, time permitting. What we did with the Wildcats in the early stages was that we had to go and sell ourselves to the community in the first instance. So when we first started really trying to get a name for ourselves, which started at uh, pre-season in 87, when we moved from Perry Lakes to the Superdrive back then, which has since been called Challenge Stadium, mm-hmm. we started to engage in the community, you know, going into schools, going into shopping centres. To start with, it was really to get a profile for the club and for the players and we started to do that and the more we did it the more we got accepted about it and the more we actually felt really good about doing it and it turned into us doing it more so for the community than for ourselves and uh, that's kind of where I sort of realised that you know you don't see yourself as a role model but yeah it's it's thrust upon you in a certain degree and then I felt a sort of uh, sense of responsibility for that so doing that then I started to get involved and that's where um, I started with Sports Challenge with uh, Gary Tester, Dr. Gary Tester. He came and spoke to me about the whole process of wanting to get this program using sports people as mentors 
for children with low self-esteem in the uh, in their schools. So mm-hmm. we actually started that way back in, uh, I think it was uh, 82 or 80, no, 85. I can't even remember what it was so long <laughs> ago now. But, but um, yeah, we started it way back then. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we got it going and it's still going. And, uh, you know, the, the Sports Challenge Australia is a corporate one that funds the ability for Sports Challenge to still work with kids in schools because the government cut the funding to the program, which was really disappointing. But uh, we do it all around the place. We work with regular um, metropolitan kids. We work with Indigenous kids up in the, in the uh, remote areas. And I've also moved into Singapore and stuff like that. So that, to me, um, was such a worthwhile program. And I actually think I got more out of it than what I gave to the kids, you know. So um, I've always had that sense. And, and I think giving back is something that's really important. And I see too many sports people take and take and take, but don't give back. And I think, you know, you've got to think what, what got you to where you were, what made you what you were, and then you need to give back. And I'm not saying I'm in that league as some of these guys are at the moment but I, I get disappointed seeing some of these very high profile people just brushing people aside I think that's very poor no absolutely I uh, I can see where you're coming from definitely and I guess with yourself that's why uh, to me the perfect Wildcats captain for 11 years the, your community involvement from such an early age I've, I've obviously heard a bit about the sports challenge story but even early on in the Wildcats history for you to be the captain of that club that was so heavily involved with community. I'd say it's had an everlasting impact on the Wildcats, heavily involved in the community and being a club which has stood the test of time in what's been a pretty rocky NBL format. Would you agree with that, that the Wildcats' uh, community involvement is a big, big part of that? Absolutely. It's, it's huge. Um, you know, they've, they've taken it to another level. That's what's been pleasing for me, is that they've continued what we started and they've built on that. And that community involvement now, <coughs> excuse me, is... Um, is spectacular because they do so much work in schools and around the place and you know you only have to look at their schedule um, from that point of view and I think they do it better than any other club by a country mile they they destroy the AFL I mean the AFL have programs but they don't do it anywhere near to the level that the Wildcats do and and there is no doubt that that is uh, no small part in why they are so successful and have been for so long. No, absolutely. And you can you see it throughout the community. Even growing up, going through schools, the, the Wildcats were so prominent and you'd probably have a Wildcats player or someone from the club come and, and see the school as well. So no, I can only agree with that. But I want to actually swing it over to a bit more of a, uh, a basketball angle itself now. And for yourself, as someone who captained for 11 years, as I previously stated, and then went into coaching, you yourself have been an exemplar for those around you. So uh, what would you say was the most rewarding aspect and most challenging aspect of captaining the Wildcats all those years? Look, I think uh, the most challenging, I'll start with that first, was the early years when we weren't that good. Uh, that, that was the most challenging um, because... You know, we had to try and stay together. We had to try and improve, and we were, continued to want to get better. And we wanted to, you know, our goal was just to make the playoffs, and and that's how it was was done. And and we predominantly did it with local guys. The the American imports that we had weren't necessarily that good. We weren't able to afford high paid players. Uh, so you know, we we pretty much did it that way. And and. You know, for a lot of your listeners, they wouldn't really necessarily know the early history of the Cats. Like, um, we never got paid to play. You know, we did it for the love. Uh, I was still holding down a full-time job for the first eight years, nine years of my career. 
Now, you know, people don't realise that. That was most of us as players were holding down full-time jobs. The imports that came in were the only ones that were paid. So while you're working a 10-hour day, and I was in the building trade, I was a wall plasterer by trade, which meant that was pretty heavy lifting doing that stuff. So I'd work for 10 hours a day and then go and train for three hours at night. Mm. And that's how we started the the whole MBL. And, you know, so I look at what these guys do now and think, I would have killed to be able to go down and lift weights, go down and get, you know, 500 shots up a day. We never did any of that. You know, we, we'd go through training sessions where you'd get two shots in a game, you know, during a session. And, and that was all the shooting that you could do unless you stayed back till, you know, midnight just to try and get some shots up. And often that's what we had to do. So in the early days, that was the biggest challenge for us is getting through that, having to do it whilst you're working, playing what was technically a professional league, but purely as amateurs. And that was difficult. And then as we started to move in and started to get a little bit more professional and uh, we had a bit more time uh, and then we started to win, the challenge then was keeping a lid on that because it had been so long since we'd seen any success that, you know, it started to go to a few people's heads and we had to try and, you know, temper them a little bit and say, hey, guys, you know, still lots of work to do here. Let's not get carried away with ourselves. So that was probably the biggest uh, challenge for me. Um, the most rewarding part, I guess, was was the community stuff, being able to help kids, uh, help kids in schools and, and seeing them look up to you and then, you know, even the coaching side of it, getting young kids and I did a lot of coaching with young kids and just it was just so much fun. They didn't have that ego there was none of that rubbish that goes with it just seeing them improve and get better and just enjoying their basketball that was probably um you know they're probably the, the couple of most rewarding things from my perspective that's awesome insight there as well especially i guess about the holding down the, the jobs and also working i know phil Smythe jumped on an interview a little while ago and he said he made three and a half thousand dollars for one of the seasons or uh, so, something in that price range which was like uh, you go back and you watch the games and you see how influential these players are and how great the players are, which, you know, I've been doing, especially in this time of hiatus, just kind of going back and watching old, old film. And it's, it's unbelievable how good the players were and how little, uh, I guess, training time, which you're kind of pointing to there, uh, that blew me away. But I guess touching a bit on your skills and everything, Mike, you said you sometimes only had a couple of uh, shots before games and such. When I go back and watch old tapes, no doubt my favorite aspect of uh, your game was your shooting. And it's probably the most important skill to have in the game today. So how did a young Mike Ellis become the incredible shooter that the NBL got to see? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not sure, Mason, to be brutally frank. Um, <laughs> I, I guess... You know, I, I kind of worked on it wherever I could. Um, when I first started, I uh, I wasn't really a, a great shooter. I was a good scorer, uh, but not necessarily a, a good shooter as such. Um, I was more about being able to get to the rack, uh, finishing at the rim, even again in traffic and all that sort of stuff. And then, then I found as, you know, we started to get better defenders and all those sorts of things, you need to start to get that skill done. And, and really, I probably honed my shooting skills, funnily enough, outside the backyard at home against my brothers because we used to go out, there was four of us, we'd go out and play two-on-two two in the backyard for hours at night. You know, with, you know, Dad set up a big spotlight out the back. You know, If anyone looked at it now, they'd go, how the hell did you ever do anything out there? You know, We had a massive great tree stump in the middle of the, in what was our court. The, the, you know, the concrete was all up and down and all that, but we had a rim. 
and we had a backboard and that was all we needed and we used to go out there and, and that's probably where I started to get my technique right because I spent a bit of time just technique-wise with my dad out the back saying, look, I need to get better at this shot. What do I need to do? And he studied a lot. He never played the game, but he studied a hell of a lot. And then we just spent a lot of time working on that, getting that technique right. And then from there, it becomes muscle memory. And that's why the shooters these days are so good is because they practice that so often. They just do it and it becomes muscle memory. For us, it was a much more conscious thing because you didn't have that amount of repetition to get that muscle memory. But, you know, again... There's no doubt, mate, no matter what you do, whatever it is, whatever your endeavour, if you don't do the work, you don't get the reward out of it. It's as simple as that. No, absolutely. And uh, I guess when I look back at your games and then I kind of picture yourself playing two and two in the backyard with your brothers, I guess that's why you're such an all-round type player. Um, and, and you can really see it in your game style, the way that you kind of spread the court and willingness to pass the ball. It's got that two on two aspect to it, which is really cool when I guess you're sharing that little story. But uh, quickly touch on this, your free throws, because in 1990, you started talking, well, you were talking about previously technique, but in the 1990 season, you actually made 101 free throws from 118 makes, which is good for 86% from the free throw line. And for any uh, young basketball players out there, have you got any tips for improving, I guess, the free throw? Yeah, look, the free throw, the interesting thing is with the free throws is that in my early days, I didn't pay much attention to foul shots. You know, and then as I started to get a little older, I'm going, hang on a second, these are free baskets, free points that we're, you know, we're missing out on. We're not concentrating on here. So I actually didn't become a, a decent free throw shooter till probably the second half of my career. So I look at that and think, well, geez, if I'd have done the job properly in the first instance, so I might have been a, you know, plus 90% foul shooter instead mm. of about a 88 or whatever. So, mm. <laughs> but the, the year I won it, uh, I remember during the course of the season, I think I hit 45 straight during the course of the season and then missed one and then went on another roll of about you know, 39 or something like that. But the biggest thing for free throws is, and if you go back and watch old tapes, you'll watch the what I do. And if you watch me shoot a foul shot at any time, what I do is exactly the same every single time. So it's about doing the same thing every time and getting that rhythm. And that's what I did. It was, uh, I've got a, a, a little short story, but a, a fan of mine uh, who is now a sponsor at the Wildcats, uh, we saw him before the game and, and we're, you know, quite good friends now, but uh, he was telling me, he's going, mate, I used to love the way you do your foul shots. He said, I, I emulated in my metropolitan competitions that I play in my domestics. But he said, I just can't shoot it as well as you did and all that sort of stuff. And he said, you know, I've got it down. I do the three bounces and then the breath out. And then I went, and I looked at him and went, well, that's because you're doing it wrong, mate. He went, what? I said, I did four bounces, not three. <laughs> and then he started to argue with me and say, no, no, you do three. I went, mate, I think I know what I used to do. I'd have a fair idea that I, I think I can remember what I did. He went back to tape and then came back the next week and said, yeah, sorry, mate, you're right. You did do four bounces. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, well, thank you for... Uh, agreeing with me finally so uh, but it's about that technique and it used to be the same thing every time and uh if you're wanting to be a good foul shooter whilst the technique has to be there it is so much more mental than it is physical you know you get your routine you get that muscle memory but then it's just you know concentrating and doing it and what i used to do as a bit of a hint for younger players is I would shoot foul shots, but then what I'd do is I'd stand there and I'd say, right, I'm going to make 10 foul shots by hitting the back of the rim. Mm. 
They're not going to hit 10 foul shots by the ball bouncing in from the front of the rim. They're not going to hit 10 foul shots without hitting the rim. And just doing that, just it's amazing how much more uh, accurate and how much more you have to concentrate because that's a very, very fine line between the front, the back, and the middle of the rim. So you have to make those adjustments. Um, and I found the more I did that, the better I got. And then we used to have competitions where, you know, we'd have a situation where you could do anything to a player while he's shooting a foul shot except for touching. Mm-hmm. So we'd have everybody trying to put you off while you're shooting foul shots and all that. And that used to be a lot of fun. I used to really enjoy that one because it was great, great for your concentration. Some good tips for the uh, younger cool cats out there listening. So thank you very much for that, Mike. That's uh, so that was in the Wildcats training sessions. The people were trying to get in your face uh, from yeah, the free throw yeah, line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We used to have competitions first to twenty one. You'd shoot as pairs and you'd do it that way. And uh, yeah, and it used to, you know, it used to get pretty competitive. You know, they were doing all sorts of crazy stuff to put you off. Some stuff I can say, others I can't say on the television or radio or anything like that. But uh, but yeah, there was certain. Some very, very interesting ways of trying to put people off. Who uh, who was the best at putting... We'll, we'll leave it at who was the best at putting people off, Mike. Uh, uh, I was up there, I must admit. <laughs> I was up there. Um, funnily enough, uh, James Harvey was pretty good at it. Okay. Yeah, Harvey was pretty good at it because he, he was quite happy to go to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll do it. That'll do it. Yep, we'll stop right there, shall we? That's it, that's it. But as you just said, you, we're, and we're talking about old tape, so just the other day alone, NBL TV, they showed Ricky Grace's debut in 1990. Do you ever find yourself looking back at old tape at all? You know, I don't. It's, it's funny, and, and um, you know, you talk about watching it on YouTube, and what I think now is it's fantastic that people can actually do that, because we were doing some cleaning up around the house um, not so long ago, and, you know, I found a box with a ton of old VHS tapes in it with old games and stuff. And I've actually, surprisingly, I've still got a tape player that works. Um, surprise, surprise. There's Perfect. one of a few in, in WA probably. But, um, but yeah, you kind of grabbed a couple of those and we we're trying to clean out. And I looked at it and I thought, if I start looking at these, there's no way I'm ever going to get any of this stuff clean. So um, I've got them all sitting there, but I haven't had a chance to go back and look at them. And I, I guess it's a bit of time, but now that... 90% of this stuff is on YouTube. Uh, that's what I find amazing is people are able to just jump online and watch old games. And I want to actually at some stage, when I get some time, unfortunately this thing called work gets in the way, but yeah. when I've got some time, it would be really nice to actually jump on YouTube and do a bit of surfing and, and check out some games, you know. And uh, But I don't tend to do it a lot myself. Yeah, look, I have really thoroughly been enjoying it and uh, getting a chance to really delve deeper into the Wildcats history, uh, watching these old game tapes. And as you said, a lot of them are on YouTube at the moment. So yeah, Mike, when you, when you get a chance, go watch those because I can say from myself, you were a very, very impressive player um, having the opportunity to go back and watch yourself. But when you reflect back, was there a particular player that you enjoyed coming up against? Yeah, look, there were, there were I mean, geez, there was tons of them, obviously. Mm-hmm. Having played for a few years, we saw a lot of imports and I guess... In the early days, my role changed. Uh, initially, I was a scorer. Um, that was my role. And then as we started to get better imports come through, they started to take over that mantle, and I became a bit more of a distributor after that. I mean, I was still a, a scorer, which was good, because you don't, can't just be a distributor. You need to be a threat. But um, I became more of a distributor. Uh, but the interesting thing about that is what I had to do was I also had to become a defender. And 
I was always the one that took the, you know, more times than not, I was the guy taking the, the best player on the other team, mm-hmm. you know, certainly if they're a guard. And there was a few really tough ones. Um, a guy by the name of Dwayne the D-Train McLean that played for Sydney for many years. Mm-hmm. He was about 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, just smooth as anything, just a fantastic player. So guarding him was a, was a real challenge. Um, the, the other guy that I had a fantastic rivalry with, I guess, is a guy by the name of Joe Hillman. He played for North Melbourne many, mm-hmm. many years ago. And uh, that was around the time when we were having this real rivalry with North Melbourne themselves. You know, they'd knocked us off two times in a row in the semis, and then we finally beat them in the semis the following year, and that was the year we won our first grand final. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, playing against him, he was a point guard, just a really strong physical point guard. So defensively, he was great. Offensively, he was great. And we used to get into it, and I mean really get into it. The physicality that we had back in those days compared to what you have now is, is night and day. Now, admittedly, the guys are bigger these days. You get hit pretty hard. But back then, you know, you run through the keyway, you'd get three elbows on the way through. And, you know, there's no calls on that. So we used to go at it hammer and tong. And after the game and after the series, we beat them. He came up and shook my hand and he said, that's the most enjoyable series I've ever played. Playing against you, that was fantastic. I loved it. It was great. Thank you. And I was like, I sort of stood back as if, well, mate, I was just trying to kick your ass, you know. <laughs> and and uh, it, what was nice about it was that he appreciated that. And he didn't find it, he didn't take it as a personal thing. He took it as, you know, a challenge. You know, two guys going head to head, basically, mano, mano, mano on mano. But, so there was him. And then, you know, on the early days, Smythe and I used to go head to head fairly often. And, you know, he was a pretty handy player back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but then probably the biggest and toughest opponent for me ever would have to be Andrew Gaze. Mm. And for a couple of reasons. One, he's six foot eight, so that made it a bit tougher. I'm only six foot. Mm-hmm. And the second part of that was that everything, absolutely everything offensively for Melbourne went through Andrew. So you couldn't take a second off, let alone a possession off, because the moment you did, bang, he would score. And uh, that was the biggest thing. And I used to, I used to love that. A lot of people used to dread guarding him. I used to love it. I always found it as a real challenge. And uh, you know, I mean, I did okay. There was a couple of times where he got away and just torched us. But uh, for the most part, I'd like to think I, I did a reasonable job on him, um, as well as anybody could. <laughs> so because yeah. he was just a scoring machine. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're probably a few of the few of the ones that were that really stick in my mind, probably. Yeah, with uh, with Gaze, uh, definitely going back and watching some old tape of uh, Andrew Gaze was he he just found a way to get to the basket, very very sneaky, knew the spacing incredibly well, I guess, and yeah, and that's the other thing with yourself, Mike. When I go back and watch these these tapes, you're often found playing, I guess, in the low block on the zone uh, against, and you're outsized, but you're still getting rebounds and still getting the positioning, and it's uh, it's incredible to see, and I can. And like I said, kind of going back to those two and twos in the backyard, I can see uh, some fighting for rebounds and such. <laughs> Very competitive. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was pretty lucky. I think I had a uh, I had a good you know low base, and uh, I had a big butt. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that helped. Big butt and strong legs, and that kind of helped. So I was able to kind of move people uh, move people around that way. And, and if you can do it with your lower body, then it's not quite as obvious for the officials either. No, absolutely, absolutely. So. I just want to touch on, on one more old school thing, if we can call it that. 
But previously in the Cool Cats Corner, I had my brother Jordan on, who you know, and we re-watched and analyzed Game 3 of the 2000 NBL Finals, and that was against the Victoria Titans, and you were an assistant coach at the Cats at the time. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but after the game, you were interviewed by Derek Rucker, and he asked you about Round 2, where Townsville beat the Wildcats by 42 points in Townsville. Do you remember what your response was? Uh, no, I do not, actually. I have no idea. Nice, uh, nice ambush with that one, buddy. Um, no, I have no idea. I'm assuming that what I said was it's still only one game. You know, I'd imagine that would be my response. Okay, we've got our butt handed to us. No, but uh, we still got to play again, I guess. <laughs> no, um, no, I, I want to bring it up because I actually loved it, um, Mike. But you actually said, we'd like to thank Townsville for that. No doubt they won us the championship by doing that to us. And I I personally <laughs> love that. And I hope it uh, still rings true and echoes in the ears of the uh, old Townsville fans today. Um, <laughs> yeah, a nice little wake-up call, yes. Absolutely. Right. A long time ago, Mike. Yeah, um, no, look, Mike, I, I only bring it up because we did analyse that game. So, um but did you did you use games like that? I guess for motivation through your playing and coaching career. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You have to. I mean, you've got to find different ways to to manufacture um, intensity in some instances because it doesn't always come natural to everybody. Some people just have that you know that uh, innate ability to turn it on or turn it off. Um, but other people, you have to manufacture it a little bit. And, and I think you've got to learn from every single game you play, not just the ones you lose, but certainly the ones you win as well. You know, And if, you, if you're not doing that and you're not doing that on a regular basis, then you're really not doing your job as either a player or a coach. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Mike, I also want to just touch on some new school cats again, uh, if we can call them that. So you guys came as a team very close to a three-peat after championships in 1990, beating Leroy Logan's Bullets, uh, and then in 91, beating Bruce Bolden's Spectres. Unfortunately, as we've just spoken about, you bowed out to Gazer's Tigers in the semis in 92. Do you foresee the current Wildcats team finally managing to get that, uh, that illustrious three-peat, I guess? It's one of the things we, we kind of lack in, in that department. We're such a celebrated club. But, uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah. The three-peat is a different one, and that, that, that brings back some sore memories for me of the '92 <laughs> season because it was my last season, um, and uh, it was a season that uh, was very disappointing. You know, you spoke a little earlier on about who I, my challenges were. Well, we had uh, a guy by the name of Murray Arnold at that stage who decided, for whatever reason, that he wanted to play the young kids rather than uh, play me. Now. You know, I thought I still had something to contribute, and I remember um, not playing much in that series. And I remember Gazy just going off, and I'm looking at him while I'm sitting on the bench, going, "Mate, I could have at least stopped a couple of points here." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, I think we still could have won that '92 season and, and three-peated. I really do, but uh, you know, that's water under the bridge. It's mm-hmm. uh, one of those things that just happens. But mm-hmm. right now, I think there's a lot of people that didn't expect the Cats to win the championship uh, this current year. You know. Not towards the end of the season, but certainly during the season. I think there were a lot of people that sort of went, oh, I don't know if they're going to have enough horses. I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. You know, Sydney's tough as hell. You know, Melbourne's still really good. Uh, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but they got there and they got it done. And they got it done in an interesting style, given the coronavirus and all that. But basically, from a playing point of view, they got the they got the back-to-back. Now, to repeat that or three-peat that, is is very very tough and obviously that's tough because very few people have ever done it or very few teams have ever done it um 
the difference this year, I think, is it's going to be a different look team. You know, and that's the hard part. I think in the last two years, they pretty much kept similar um, personnel. Slight changes here or there, little tweaks here or there, but they had that uh, that chemistry. They had that same playing group that played together for a long time. Until I see the final roster for this year, mm-hmm. you know, because that's going to change fairly considerably, my only question is, can they find that chemistry again? Mm-hmm. You know, now, anybody that writes the Wildcats off is bloody crazy just quietly because they've proved time and time again that they just find ways to win. And I don't see this season being any different. But to me, the difference will be, can they find that chemistry? And that's the difference between great teams and good teams. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were never the best talented team overall, but they were the best team overall. And, and that's what they've got to find to have any chance of getting that three-peat again. But I'm certainly not writing them off from a chance of doing it because I never write the cats off. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And, uh, you look, can't write us off for the last uh, 34 years. And that, that started with, with a Mike Ellis-led Wildcats team, which is you know, still incredible to this day that, that that record remains. But do you have a current favourite Perth Wildcat player at the moment? Is there anyone that, that's, that piques your interest more than more than others? Oh, look, I, you know, I, I think I, I, I relate a lot to Damo, really, mm-hmm. because he plays a similar role, similar, not necessarily a similar style, but a sort of, you know, I, I relate to him. He, he runs that team. He, he is a leader out on the floor. And, you know, I just, as a player as a coach as a spectator you know i look at that and you, you know you can never take your you know eyes off cotton obviously mm-hmm. because he's just spectacular in what he does mm-hmm. but to me it's not always the, the highest scoring player out on the floor that necessarily has the most impact you know it's the guys that set the picks to get him free the ones that move the ball they get him the ball at the right time so mm-hmm. he can make those shots now his one-on-one skills are second to none, so he can get his own shot off. But he gets a lot of lot of points where the rest of the guys on the floor have done the work to get him the ball. Mm-hmm. And Damo, to me, is the guy that does that. You know, you can talk about his defence till the cows come home because it's spectacular. But to me, it's just his leadership out on the floor. He does a fantastic job. And I can really relate to him uh, in the role that he has taken with that club. You know, I suppose from, from my history, it was kind of a similar thing that I had to try, try and do uh, and keep everybody together. So Damo, for me, is really probably the one that, uh, that I, uh, I admire the most out there. No, that's, a, that's actually a great, great comparison because, uh, like you said, Damo and yourself both have led for such a long time, did it really well defensively as well. Anyone that I've ever spoken to has met yourself, Mike, so only got great things to say. And then I guess the same thing happens with Damo, and you see that with past players they could have been with him for one, two years, but they pull so much out of that experience, and they and they speak to that often. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but so what I want to do, a couple more questions. I've had you for quite some time now, and I really appreciate the time, as I said. But I have a question here from Matt from Cat Chat, the Facebook group, and he had a question which was, what's the Wildcats organization engagement like with past players, and do past Wildcats keep in touch? That's a really good question, Matt. Um I tell you what, it's been—it's gone through uh, a couple of alliterations actually. Uh, in the early days, well, we were the early guys, so there was no uh, nothing to really fall back on. We went through a, a middle stage, probably about uh, I'm thinking eight, ten years ago, where it was really poor. They really did a poor job of it, 
And, you know, there was no real uh, engagement in that respect. Uh, there was no acknowledgement in that respect. But then in recent times, and when I say recent, I mean from about the last 10 years or so, uh, they have actually done a, a really, really good job of engaging back with the, the past players and getting them involved. Uh, you know, a few years ago we had our 30th anniversary where they put on a game and they bought every player in from the very first team and they brought them back from the States in, in some instances from other places um, and brought them in and we played a game uh, down at the at, uh, Challenge Stadium. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but uh, it was a fairly impressive uh, lineup of old guys, you mm. know, and it was, uh, <laughs> it was great to catch up with those guys and just to spend time with those guys, you know, the, the guys that you played the very first season with at Perry Lakes. Uh, that was that was fantastic. It really was, and we really enjoyed that. Uh, I even pulled out the uh, the old short shorts. I had the <laughs> uniforms on, which had the big shorts, uh, but I had my short shorts on underneath. And during the game, I took my long shorts off, and it looked like I had no pants on because my singlet was quite long. So, and I and it was they were so tight I couldn't tuck my singlet into my shorts. So, um, I actually had to pull my shorts up a little bit. So that oh sorry my singlet up a bit so people could see I actually had shorts on underneath, but I uh, I pulled those out for a retro look at what uh, we used to wear when we were young, when we were playing initially, not these big baggy things where you don't actually need to have any legs of any description because no one sees them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so we did that and that was great and and the Wildcats now are, are really really good um, at engaging past players. They do a good job of it. Um, I still think they could do a better job. There's no question about that. You know, you will, you will always say that. But they do a decent job of engaging the players. And quite often they'll get uh, get um, guys in that will present a uniform. So, for example, last year, uh, Wani Swaka, um, mm-hmm. he, he, I actually coached him at Sterling. He played with me at Sterling. But, um, and I coached him as an under-16. We won a championship as an under-16 in, in, in the wobble competition. Mm-hmm. So I've known Whitey for years and watched him grow and, and become the great player that he is. He was signed for the Cats last year for the first time, or for this season, and uh, Trevor asked me to come down and present the uniform to him, which was a great honour for me to do that. Um, and they do that quite regularly. They've had different guys, you know, different players, past players come in and present a uniform to the new contracted players. You know, I remember early in the days I did it originally for... for uh, uh, a number of the, the guys like Jermaine Beale, for example, mm-hmm. I did it way back in those days. But what, what Trevor has done in recent times when he's got involved, he's really pushed the legacy of the Wildcats. So it's like, um, you know, it's like remember remember your roots sort of stuff. And and they always go back on that. They look at that and they, they honour the guys that started it all for them. And when I'm talking, what I'm talking about is within the, the playing group, you're getting into playoffs and all that. He, he talks about, you know, you're not playing just for you guys. You're playing for these guys that started it. You know, mm. there's a history mm. there. There's a legacy there. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think that is a really, really good thing that they, they look at that history and, and I suppose they build off that history and say, well, you know, there's guys that have come before you that have done some, you know, fantastic things. And you guys need to honour what they have done and what they have given you the opportunity to now do. And uh, I think that is certainly no doubt plays a small part in why they are so successful. You know, it's, it's all about ex- expectations. 
you know, I said to you earlier on in this interview that when we first started playing, our expectation was, gee, I really hope we can make the playoffs. Mm. And we rarely did for the first five years. Well, we never did for the first five years. Mm-hmm. Now the expectation is you're coming in to win a championship. Anything less than that is unacceptable. And that is how every new player is indoctrinated into the Wildcats. It's just an expectation. And you have to live up to that. And you have to perform at that level to make that happen. Uh, and they do that by the now, but they also do it by the future. So, Matt, that was a bit long-winded answer, but hopefully it covered what you're asked. No, I think it's no, I think that's great. I think Matt will be uh, sitting there with a smile on his face for sure. But the Wildcats, it's great that they have gone back to those roots because I think it's unbelievably important. And then as someone who actually has, I've done a lot of, I guess, research and studied into the Cats and the history, it's just so significant. That's, that's the reason I'm actually making the podcast because I guess a portion of this, we do go back and we look at some uh, Wildcats history stuff and who better to hear from than Mike Ellis himself. So I, this is the next question we have. Uh, there, actually, we did have a question about the short shorts, but you've touched on that, which is, <laughs> which is fantastic. They're actually coming back, I think, Mike. I've seen some younger college players in the States rocking uh, the short shorts. So, yeah, they're starting to roll up the top, aren't they, to bring the shorts up a they little are. bit, see? They are. Yeah, you were just re- exactly. you were, you're a trendsetter just way too early, that's all. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. But this next question is from Nick, who is a big Wildcats fan. He says, do you foresee Cody having another go in the NBL, especially with it expanded to 10 teams and a Tasmanian team? Uh, look, Nick, thank you for that question. Look, I, I think uh, Cody's at the point in his career where he's he's now got a uh, he's got a young son, mm-hmm. he's got a family, um, mm-hmm. he is working for a living um, now, and being out of the league for probably a couple of years has got it to the point where it's probably going to be pretty difficult for him to come back. I, mm. Look, I think he would love to. I really do think he would He would enjoy coming back and playing in that league. And, you know, I think if he was in shape, if he was in NBL shape, um, I think he would could definitely contribute in the league. I have no doubt about that in my own mind. I just don't think he necessarily got the opportunity to do it um, when he was playing. Now that he's out of that loop, I think that'd be very rare that uh, anyone would look at someone, and you'd classify him more as a veteran than a than a younger player coming in because he's a little older mm-hmm. now. And uh, I think they're they're certainly looking at the younger breed of players coming through. So I think it's highly unlikely that that would happen. Um, and you know, probably given where Cody is at the moment in his in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably not something that, that would happen for him, I don't think. Uh, like I said, I'm sure he'd mm. love it if he got the opportunity, um, but I'm not convinced that that opportunity will actually rise, raise its head. Okay, yeah, no. Look, I, I, I thought his last season, I believe, was in Illawarra. Um, I thought he played uh, yeah. quite well and his shooting was, shooting was up. And Yeah, but look, it would be to detriment of the Warwick uh, Senators, the SBL team which you coach. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely would be. And so I was listening to the SBL shoot around with Chris Pike and Ben Etridge. Yes. And so they have their little podcast on the SBL and they were talking of this West Coast Classic, which is going to take place commencing in July. Are the Senators looking to take it all the way this season? Obviously, the answer to that one is yes, but are you looking forward to this? Are you looking forward why to it? You, why would you go into a season <laughs> not expecting to win it? Come on, mate. Absolutely. It was totally understandable when they cancelled the SBL season uh, proper, you know, with, with everything that's going on with this, this thing that is, for most people, you know, unless you're kind of fairly uh, old, 
it's a once in a lifetime type of scenario, you know. So, not too many people would have lived through anything like this mm-hmm. previously. Um, so, I totally get them cancelling it. But what what is good is that they've decided with this West Coast Classic to to still actually have a competition of sorts because otherwise, most of the SBL players would go twelve months without playing, and you know that's probably a bit long. So, they've put together this SBL Classic. Uh, it's Technically, there's, look, there's no one getting paid. Not that anybody gets massive money in the SBL, but no one's getting paid. It's uh, strictly uh, no imports because you can't bring anybody in anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's an import that is living in Perth and has been for a while or Kalgoorlie or Geraldton and uh, are happy to play without getting paid, then they will play. But other than that, you're not going to see too many imports. Mm-hmm. Um, what you will see, though, you'll see probably a few guys that were at college that have come back and are now, um, you know, living in Perth because they came back from where they were. They couldn't, they didn't want to stay over in, in the US, and who would at this point in time, <laughs> the way that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might see a few of those guys coming back and playing in this West Coast Classic. But I actually think it's going to be a, a pretty decent competition. You know, they're, they're terming it as a domestic competition but I, I think it's going to be kind of just that little bit lower than what the SBL was because they won't necessarily have the imports playing but I still think it's going to be a very very good level and uh, you know it's going to be a lot of fun it's also going to be probably a little bit more low-key than what the SBL season is mm-hmm. a little bit more relaxed but it's uh, once you know once they throw the ball up mate you're still going to get out everyone's going to go for it so yeah i think it's good it's, it's uh interesting although i must admit i was actually enjoying not having to go to training at times <laughs> okay and there for a while i was like i'm just actually staying home what's this i'm not used to this what's this about <laughs> Now putting your feet up a little bit, but I myself am very much looking forward to it and get down to some uh, Senators games for sure, if it permits. But you mentioned Wani, who who played for the Senators. Are we going to be seeing the likes of some Wildcats potentially playing in this West Coast Classic? Look, uh, that's a, a really good question, Mason, and that I'm not sure of. There's lots of rumours running around at the moment. That's gonna. It's really going to depend on uh, on a couple of things, I think. One is... Obviously, the, the guys aren't getting paid, so whether the Wildcat guys want to actually play without getting any um, coin, mm-hmm. that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, if they do play, are they going to be able to play the whole season, including the finals? Because if they're not, then you go, well, I'm not sure there's much point in playing in my team if they're not going to be able to play playoffs. Mm-hmm. Okay, they might help to make some of the other players better, um, and that's fine, but you know, that's another thing you need to look at. And the third thing, obviously, is whether or not the Wildcats are happy for those players to play. And that's probably the single biggest determining factor is whether the Cats are allowing people to play. So I'm hearing a couple of rumours around the place uh, at the moment, but, uh, you know, we just need to find a kind of try and get a, uh, a determination from the Wildcats whether or not they're happy for guys to play or not. Uh, but if they are, then I'm sure you'll see a few guys because... There's got to be players that are saying, well, you know, the NBL season's starting in a, in a while. I haven't done anything since, you know, the, the season finished. Uh, might be good to get out and have a run around and try and get my legs under me and maybe get a bit of a, a touch back and a feel back for the game. Yeah, well, I know uh, Sean Bruce of the Sydney Kings said he'd even... Look, I know that he can't come over here, as you said, no imports. You have to be here from, I think it was the 1st of May. Um, yes. But he even said that he'd like to uh, come over and play his basketball. So I'm sure there'd be some sort of interest there. 
But Mike, you've, uh, you have been extremely and more than generous with your time, and I really do appreciate this and, and having a chat today. You've played 302 NBL games, two-time NBL champion as a player and as a captain, which is just incredible over your 11-season career. You've gone on to have a very impressive coaching career as well, and I feel very honored to have you as uh, my first ever guest here in the Cool Cats Corner, so I just want to say thank you very much. No, absolute pleasure, Mason, and good luck with it all. Um, you know, based on what we've done here, I'm sure that uh, you'll have a lot of people and do a, a fantastic job uh, having a chat to them as well. So uh, good luck with it. No, thank you very much, Mike. All right, so Cool Cats, how was that? I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. Our interview with Mike Ellers went for a substantial amount of time in the end. And I, like I said, I do thank Mike for the time he took to have the conversation with us to delve a little bit deeper into Perth Wildcats history. But now you guys know the Howie Games, Luke Longley's podcast. Definitely go check those out. Mike highly recommends that. Make sure you're playing all the two-on-two in the backyard as possible to be as good as Mike Ellis on the court. Make sure you go back and check out the names of Dwayne, D-Train, McLean, and Joe Hillman as well. We got to find out a little bit about what it was like captaining those Perth Wildcats. Mike and his family extremely instrumental in the basketball WA community and still are to this day. His Sterling Senators are going to take part in this 10-week West Coast Classic kicking off in late July. So make sure we get down and support the local basketball league as well. But as always, I hope you've had fun. This is the Cool Cats Corner. My name's Mason DeLeo. Thanks for chilling. Much love.